We've been preaching through this series called Lord Teach Us to Pray. As we've preached through that, as we've talked over these weeks about prayer, as we've talked about um, seeking God and pressing God in prayer, taking hold of God through prayer, I don't know about you, but for me, it has felt like one encouragement after another to press into prayer, to take hold of God in prayer, as if God is committed to making sure there is no obstacle, no hindrance when it comes to prayer, as if God himself is able and ready to help us with every struggle we might have with prayer. To those of us that come to prayer and we're just too busy to pray, we don't have time in our life to pray, we don't know how to slow down in order to pray, God has invited us through his word as we talk through Martha and Mary that we need to sit like Mary did at Jesus' feet, that you need Jesus much more than Jesus needs your accomplishments and your work. To those of us who don't know how to approach God, when we come in prayer, we heard Jesus' invitation to us that we are like children with a well, good, loving father, and so we can approach God like children do with their dad. And Jesus told us because of his death, and resurrection and adoption into the family of God, we are now the sons and daughters of God who speak to God as our Father. For those of us that struggle then still and need just help in prayer, we said that each member of the Trinity is himself engaged and committed to helping you in prayer, that the Spirit and the Son and the Father, every part, each member, is helping you in prayer. For those of us who feel like when we do sit to pray, we just don't know what to say. Even last week, God invited us through his word and said, when you don't know how to compose the words, God's word has composed words for you. And the word that we read can be the word that we pray. We can pray the scriptures. For those of you who generally see things as glasses that are half full, the optimists in the room, you must come through this series and feel like, what can stop us when it comes to prayer? There's no hindrance. We can approach God. God has made every way to lay hold of him in prayer. Let me read for you three verses. Proverbs 28, verse 9. It says this, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Let me read you another one. Isaiah 1, verse 15. Just hear it. When you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen to you. Your hands are full of blood. Proverbs, Psalm 66, verse 17 and 18. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. Through these weeks, it has felt like one invitation after another to come to God in prayer, like nothing can stop us. And yet, I want you to hear the scriptures say, if there is one thing that can stop your prayers, it's sin, unconfessed sin. If there's one thing that can stop de prayer dead in its tracks, be a hindrance to your prayers, if there's one thing that can cause your prayers to meet with the closed ears and turned face of God to you, it's sin, unconfessed sin, sin that you have not brought out into the light, sin that you have not exposed to God, sin that you have not sought God for forgiveness over. If there is sin that you are nurturing, hiding, festering, pestering, and, and fostering in your heart, God will not hear your prayer. 
A man dare not expect to be heard by his wife if he's holding hands with his new girlfriend. Likewise, no man dare expect to be heard by God if we are clutching on to sin, holding sin, cherishing sin, nurturing sin. God will not hear our prayers. And so, if we're in a series where we're saying, Lord, teach us to pray, we must also say, Lord, teach us to confess. Teach us to pray for forgiveness so that our prayers might be heard. And perhaps there is no passage in all the scriptures that is more well-known or better to teach us what a prayer of confession looks like than Psalm 51. If you've got a Bible, it's underneath. If you don't have one, Psalm 51 is the passage Nate read for us. Psalm 51 is where you go in order to learn what confession looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like, what a prayer for forgiveness looks like. Right? That's where you'd go. If you want to learn about photography, you go hang out with Shibu. If you want to learn about comics or sci-fi or all things pointy-eared, you go to Chris or Kurt, right? If you want to know what it looks like to babysit 15 kids, make it look easy without using drugs or a taser, you go to Peggy Sue, right? If you want to know what confession looks like, you hang out with David in Psalm 51. Because when you get a feel for Psalm 51, you get teeth into what it looks like to confess, to pray for forgiveness. If you're there in Psalm 51, when you open it, right off the bat, in the very first part, right next to the numbers, you see this small fine print, this small blurb above verse 1. And I want you to know, this might be helpful for you to know, that that's not some kind of editor's comments, that's not a little bit of information put in by the publishers, that's not original to the ESV Bible that you hold, that was part of the original writings. So the writers of the scriptures gave you that information, and oftentimes that little bit of information is helpful, as is the case certainly here with Psalm 51. The very first words, the small fine print, says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Okay, so what that means is if we're going to understand this psalm, we've got to understand what caused this psalm to be written. If we're going to understand what happened here and why David prayed this prayer, we've got to first understand what happened that caused David to pen these words, to pray this prayer. So to understand that, we've got to actually flip back in our Bibles. We've got to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's on page 168 of those Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And rather than just dumping you into chapter 11, what I want to do is just work from a few chapters before that so that you have sort of a running head start when you get to chapter 11. Let me just set the background for you so you know what you're diving into. When you get to 2 Samuel, this man named David, this king, it's about 20 years since a prophet named Samuel had come into his town, come to his home, poured oil on his head and said, you are going to be the next king of Israel. About two decades has passed from that moment. And over those 20 years, this man David is hunted, is on the run, is falsely accused, is persecuted, he's hiding in caves, he's running all over the place, he's barely making out with his life. And now two decades later, 20 years since the oil flowed on his hair, 
He's finally king. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, he is made king of all of Israel. And it's taken a while to get to that moment. But from that moment, I mean, it's just nothing but blue skies for David. It's just one accomplishment after another, one achievement after another, one accolade after another. David's climb up seems seems limitless. In fact, in 2 Samuel 5 verse 10, it says this, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord the God of hosts was with him. Hear that? And David became greater and greater, for God was with him. And as you just flip through the chapters from 5 onwards, Even if you don't read them right now, just looking at the chapter headings lets you know David's success, right? That this word is true, that David becomes greater and greater. In 5 verse 17, right after this section where he's made a king, it says, David defeats the Philistines. His sworn enemies, his nemesis, David destroys them. Chapter 6, the title talks about how the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to Jerusalem. If you were here when we studied through Exodus, you know the Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's presence and blessing. That had been outside of the city of God, outside of Jerusalem, but David marches it back in, and there's dancing and rejoicing and blessing. God has come back to his people. Chapter 7, you read and you find that David gets a covenant made with him by God. Hear that. The last time that such a significant covenant is made with a single man is the days of Abraham and Noah. When God showed up in Abraham's life, he said, I'm going to make you great and bless you. And that's what David's getting in chapter 7. This one-time shepherd boy, now king of Israel, is getting a covenant from God. And if you read chapter 7, what happens is David says, how is it that I'm dwelling in this palace? I was once a shepherd in the fields. I'm living in this glorious palace, yet God is dwelling in a tabernacle tent. I'm going to build him a house. And God, who will not be outdone in generosity, flips it on David and says, you won't build me a house. I will build your house. And in chapter 7, he makes this promise to David that from his line would come king after king after king, and his line would have a king with an everlasting kingdom. Though David didn't fully understand it there, as far back as chapter 7, God has just promised David Jesus. He says to David, from your line is going to come a king whose kingdom will never come to an end. From the line of this one shepherd boy, insignificant nobody, passed over by everyone, is now going to come God's own son, the Messiah of the world, through him. You go to chapter 8, and the title just says, David's victories. Because the Bible doesn't have time or room to parse out all of them. It's just sort of a a trophy case of all of David's victories. If you read chapter 8, he defeated them, then he defeated them, then he defeated them, then he defeated them. It's sort of a trophy case of all the different accolades, accomplishments. You get the idea. It takes about six chapters to fully unpack all of David's achievements, his accomplishments, his accolades. It takes about five verses to cut it all down. In the first five verses of chapter 11, it all crumbles and it's all destroyed. When you come to chapter 11, the title simply says, David and Bathsheba. And what happens as you read chapter 11 is David's men are out on the field again fighting for king and country. They're being killed on the battlefields and David is at home killing time. 
And the king is walking around on his palace, taking a stroll on the balcony, on the roof, and he sees a woman bathing. Verse 2 in the text adds, And the woman was very beautiful. That simple detail is there to let the reader know, uh uh-oh, right? Something ominous, something bad, something terrible is lurking and is about to happen. The king is killing time. He's strolling on the rooftop, sees a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. The next verse tells us that David then sends to inquire about who this woman is. One of his messengers come back and say, isn't this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now those names sound foreign to you. They mean nothing to you. They were not foreign to David. He knew those names well. Eliam was one of his best soldiers. In fact, Eliam's father was one of David's most trusted counselors and advisors. Bathsheba's dad was one of his soldiers. Bathsheba's grandpa was one of David's most trusted counselors. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, was one of David's inner circle of men. There was this band of brothers called David's mighty men. If you read in the scriptures, their exploits are incredible. They, They would make movies out of what these men did. They would stand in a field and slay a hundred at a time. Uriah is one of David's best soldiers, not just one of his best soldiers, one of his mighty men, one of his closest comrades. Now as I read this, to me, it is, and I don't, I don't know what the right word is, stunning or bewildering or shocking. It is, it is shocking the truths that we must blow past when we are committed to our sin. Let me say that again. To me, as I read this, it is shocking the realities we have to close our ears and eyes to, the realities we have to blow past when we are committed to our sin. That that woman that you're leering at is another man's wife and another man's daughter. And yet we, we numb ourselves to those realities when we're committed to our sin. I think about our church. We're connected now with Bombay Teen Challenge, an organization that is fighting human trafficking. And yet it is a reality and a fact That one of the reasons the entire industry, the entire enterprise of human trafficking exists is because of the global demand for free and illicit sex. Because there is a global demand for free and illicit sex, human trafficking exists. It is a given fact and reality that human trafficking exists in order to serve the pornography industry in which many women are trafficked and forced to act. And so it is shocking, it is bewildering, it is stunning that with every click of our mouse, with every website we enter in, we are fueling the very industry we are so desperately trying to destroy. It's shocking, stunning, bewildering, amazing, the realities we have to ignore when we are committed to our sin. But those details often don't slow us down, nor did they slow David down as well. He finds out that this woman is one of his closest advisor's granddaughter, one of his best soldier's daughter, one of his closest friend's wife. And the next verse says, just like he sent to find out who she was, now he sends for her. 
He's now not a shepherd boy who can't make things happen. He is the king. He can make things happen, and he makes this happen. He sends for her. She comes to him, and the verse says this. Verse 4, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Here's the king who can make things happen now, and he makes it happen. He sends for her, he takes her, he sleeps with her. The Bible adds this verse about now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's the Bible's way of saying that she had just finished her monthly cycle. And you almost go, why does the Bible put such silly, irrelevant details? The Bible's amazing. You know why that's there? That's the Bible's way of saying to you, when she got there that night, she was not pregnant. Why? Because she had just finished her monthly cycle. And it's the Bible's way of saying to you, now some time has passed and she is, the, is at the ideal time to conceive. What that's doing is setting you up for the next verse, verse 5. And it says, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David heard that like a 19-year-old today would hear. I'm pregnant. That's the way David heard those words. And David hears that, and all he can think to himself is, She's pregnant. What on earth am I going to do? She's pregnant. And so now David is committed to his sin. And the more committed he is to his sin, the deeper, darker, and dirtier it takes him. And so he hatches a plot. He comes up with a cover-up. And verse 6 onwards tells us that what he does is he calls Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, the soldier, from the fields to the palace. And perhaps that was a curious thing for, Bat for Uriah. Why would the king take one of the best fighters out of the field and bring him to the palace? And as you read, you find out that David simply asked him some questions like, how's Joab the commander? How's the war going? How are you doing? Certainly someone else could have fielded those questions for the king, but Uriah tells him as best as he can. And here's David's plot. David sends Uriah off and says, go down to your house and wash your feet. Just a simple phrase, but the idea is, Go to your house, rest up a bit, clean up, enjoy time with your wife, enjoy her hospitality as this war hero is coming back home. And David's thought is surely as he goes home, after being in the fields for so long, enjoys the hospitality of his wife, surely they will be intimate and enjoy marital bliss. And then David can pawn off that this kid was Uriah's. He'll go back to the fields, no one will be the wiser. So David invites Uriah in. He says to him, go down to your house, wash your feet. Uriah goes. There's just one problem. Uriah is an honorable soldier. You see, there was a code of ethics at that day that if you were fighting the Lord's battle, you were going to consecrate yourself to the Lord and abstain from sexual relations. Furthermore, how are you going to go home, eat and drink and enjoy your wife when your brothers, your band of brothers, your comrades are out in the open fields, each of them longing just as desperately to be home with their wives? And so Uriah will not do this thing against the Lord or against his fellow man. And so he goes out and he sleeps outside of his house. David finds out about that and he's bewildered. He doesn't know what to do, so he tries it again. He's going to bring Uriah into his house. This time, he's going to load him up with food and drink. And he's, when he's good and drunk and hammered, he'll go home. And surely, 
which man tripping over himself, tipsy, will not go home and enjoy his wife after having been in the battlefield, separated from his wife for months? The only problem is, Uriah drunk is more righteous than David sober. Uriah, and, and there's this detail that I had missed till this week. It says Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite. He, he's not an Israelite. He's a foreigner. He wasn't born to God's people with God's law. He's a foreign convert. And yet this foreign convert has greater loyalty to Yahweh and to Yahweh's people than the very king of Israel. And so drunk, tripping over himself, Uriah still doesn't go home. He grabs a cot next to the servants and sleeps. And now David is out of options. He is committed to his sin, and this thing takes him darker and deeper and dirtier. And so he comes up with a new plot. He's going to send Uriah back, except he's going to send with him word to the commander Joab that you are to send Uriah into the fiercest section of the battle, and then you are to pull back and let him die. And, and he gives this letter to Uriah. And Uriah doesn't even know that he's carrying his own death sentence onto the field. And he hands this letter to Joab, and Joab does exactly what David had commanded. Word comes back to David that Uriah is killed, and when he hears this word, he doesn't grieve, he's not remorseful, he doesn't repent, he doesn't weep. Look at what he says in verse 25. He says, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. The equivalent would be, you know what? Such is a soldier's fate. We've all got to die at some point. Don't worry yourself. Again, it's, it's shocking, bewildering, stunning how hard, how numb our hearts turn when we are committed to our sin. It's unbelievable the realities we push aside and ignore and the, the numbness and hardness of our hearts. This man dies at David's hand and he says... Such is life. C'est la vie. Everyone's got to die now or then. And the chapter ends with now Bathsheba hears that her husband is slain on the field. She mourns for him. And when the time of mourning is over, David takes Bathsheba in and makes him his wife. It's almost a gesture to the whole country of what a magnanimous, gracious king who's going to take in the slain war hero's widowed wife and adopt her own son as his own. No one's the wiser. Adultery, murder, conspiracy, lies, and no one knows. And it's almost as if his plan works. Except for the very last sentence of chapter 11. It's just one sentence, a short sentence, and it changes the whole game. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. No one knew but God. No one saw it. No one was the wiser but God. What was hidden from everyone's sight was in plain view before God. What, what, what was a secret to the whole world was shouted in God's ears and visible to God's sight. And God knew. And in chapter 12, I won't go through the whole thing. Nearly a year has passed. 
because she gives birth to this son. So over a year, and, and I had missed that too, imagine what it would be like for David, the agony of his emotional state, his spiritual state, his mental state of walking around for a year without this thing confessed to God. Still being the, the king of God's people, leading the people into God's temple, what would it be like for a year to have this thing growing in the dark and not brought out into the light? A year of unconfessed sin. At last, in God's mercy, I want to say, God sends Nathan in chapter 12. And Nathan shows up and Nathan basically tells the king a story. He says, King, in your kingdom there is a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had a whole bunch of sheep, a huge flock. The poor man had one lamb, one small ewe lamb that he cared for and nursed and, and watched over. And the king, the rich man, had a friend come over and instead of taking a sheep from his flock, he took the one small thing that that poor man had, devoured it for himself, took it for himself. The king hears the story and he's enraged and he says, that man should die. Which subject in his, in his kingdom has the audacity to think that he can do that and get away with it? And at that point, Nathan points his finger and says, you are the man. You're the man. You're the one to whom God gave all of this and yet you took the one thing you couldn't have. You're the one that took that wife of another man as yourself, for yourself. You are the man. And after Nathan begins to recount to David his sins, sins that had gone unconfessed in the dark for over a year, no one knew about it, and Nathan speaks them to David. And David has one sentence at the end. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. And then, with his sin exposed and his heart broken and laid bare, he writes the words that we read in Psalm 51. So turn back for a second. Psalm 51. There, with his sin exposed, his heart broken and laid bare, he pens the words that we read in Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he does four things that I want to show you quickly. He turns to God. He owns his sin. He seeks to change. He believes the gospel. I'll say that again. He turns to God. He owns his sin. He seeks to change. He believes the gospel. Let me walk you through quickly Psalm 51. First, he turns to God. Look at the first two verses. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Here's what David does. The first thing he does is he turns to God. I want you to hear that. That's what repentance is. Repentance is you're walking in one way and all repentance means is you turn to God. That's the, that's the only definition of repentance. It's your, for a year he's committed to sin, he's walking in one direction and he turns now to God. That's all repentance is and that's the difference between Christians and non-Christians. That's it. They're both sinners. It's just one has turned to God. That's the difference between Peter and Judas. Hear that? Both of them were known by Jesus. Both of them turned their backs on Jesus. Both of them denied Jesus, betrayed Jesus. Both of them weep bitterly over what they had done. The only difference between Peter and Judas is Judas lets his sin and his grief take him in a direction and he keeps walking in that direction till it leads to his suicide and death. 
And the only difference is Peter turns. Peter turns to God. And that's the only difference between heaven and hell. Heaven is full of sinners who have turned to God. Hell is full of sinners who walk from God and God condemns them to that trajectory for all eternity. Heaven is simply sinners who have turned to God and God blesses them with that trajectory for all eternity. He turns to God. For a year he's been nurturing this sin, nourishing this sin, hiding this sin, keeping this sin. Now he turns to God. And he says, have mercy on me, O God. That's the cry of all sinners. That's the first prayer of confession. That's what you start confession with. Have mercy on me, O God. When Jesus taught about prayer, he taught about two men who went to the temple. One a self-righteous good guy. One a filthy, dirty, sinful tax collector. And he says the sinful tax collector couldn't even look to heaven. So he beat his chest and he said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, the sinner. And Jesus said, That man went home right now with God. Right with God. Justified. Because the prayer is, have mercy on me, O God. What a sinner cries out is, don't do to me what I deserve. That's what you're praying. Don't treat me like I deserve. Have mercy on me. Now why? Why would David or a sinner like you or me think that we could go to God and ask Him, don't do to me what I deserve, without thinking that He'll slam the door in our face and say, too sorry, too late. Be gone. Why would we hope that we could turn to God? It's because of what David says next. According to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy, you can come because this is who God is. This is His unfailing love. David had failed. God's love never fails. It never has an off day or an off hour or a missed moment. It is always steadfast, always available. And because of your abundant mercy and your steadfast love, have mercy on me. David had heard these words from the scriptures that when God revealed himself to Moses, God said, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God revealed himself as the kind of God who forgives every category of sin. And David needs that because look at what he says. He uses every category of sin and says, Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Transgression, iniquity, sin, get it all away from me. And even the words that he uses, he says, Blot out my transgression. The idea of blot out is sort of like wiping away dirt from your mouth. Or wiping away dirt from a plate. That's how he's saying, blot out my transgressions. Don't let it be kept in the record books. Wipe it out. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. The, the idea of wash there is trample underfoot. In, in third world countries to this day, they don't go to a laundromat. If they've got dirty clothes, they grab those clothes and trample their clothes underfoot. A small rinse, a little soak will not do. In order to get that dirt out, they must trample their clothes. And David is saying, wash me thoroughly, trample my iniquity underfoot till this is rid from me, till this filth is removed. Cleanse me from my sin. He says the kind of cleansing that a man needs if he's going to go into the temple of God, the inner purity that's required, the cleansing that you're clean from your sin. David needs this so badly in his life. He'll say it again in verse 7 through 9. 
He'll say, purge me with hyssop, this plant that would sprinkle, douse you with water. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David knows that the filth of that act has stained his soul and he's desperate for God to do something. To not treat him like he deserves, but to show him mercy. To wash him, to clean him, to blot away his sin. Confession, a prayer of confession, is turning to God. Now then, having turned to God, second, he acknowledges his sin. He owns his sin. He's turned to God, and now he owns his sin. Look at what he says in verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight, so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Listen to this. Having turned to God in his confession, now he owns his sin. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. I know my transgressions. And, and just the number of times David says, me and my. Wash me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Blot out my transgressions. David assumes responsibility for his sin. He's not going to excuse it away. This is his. He owns his sin. He's not going to blame it somewhere else. He's not going to say, oh, if you only knew the pressures of being a king, how hard it is to daily manage these things, I've got to take a break. I owe it to myself once in a while. He's not going to say, oh, it's the, the problem of architecture in Israel. Why do they put bathtubs on roofs anyway? <laughs> this is my sin. I did this. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Think of that. A year. A year of unconfessed sin. That means day after day he's trying to put it away, trying to hide it, trying to get rid of it, and my sin is right there. Ever before me. And you know what that's like. You know what it's like to try and medicate away your sin, drink away your sin, sleep with someone away your sin, do something to try and rid yourself of your sin, and my sin is ever before me. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Why does he say that? Is he belittling the sin that he had committed against Bathsheba or against Uriah or against the baby or against the whole country that had put their trust in him? No. But what he's saying is ultimately this sin, like all sin, like your sin, is aimed at God. It's an offense to God. When Nathan shows up, Nathan says, the Lord said to him, you despised me in your heart. That means that sin is not ultimately decided by public approval or disapproval. This was guilty in God's sight, whether anyone knew it or not. Against you have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. No one had seen it, but it was evil in your sight. And in, in the court of human opinion, whether it's approved or disapproved, in your court, you saw it and it was wrong. In fact, that's why he goes on to say, so you are justified in your judgment and blameless in your verdict. That is when God says, you are guilty, David says, I am. I am guilty. That confession, what confession is, is agreeing with God about what God says about you. 
Confession is you agreeing with God about what God says about you. God looks at you and says you are guilty and you agree with Him in confession. That's what David has to do. Against you and you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. So you are justified in your judgment and blameless in your verdict. And then he says, and this misdeed, this is not out of character for me. He says, surely I was sinful from birth. From the moment my mother conceived me, I was in iniquity. Hear that. Why is David saying that? David's saying that so that you know, listen, this is not some kind of anomaly in an otherwise unblemished life. This is consistent with who I am. Because this is who I've been from the hour I was born. In fact, from the moment I was conceived. There's been this bent in my heart away from God, a proneness to wander, a proclivity towards sin. When you sin, do not be surprised and wonder to yourself, how could this have happened to me? How could this have come out of me? All your sin revealed to you is this is how bad you really are. This is not out of character for you. This is not an anomaly. This is how desperately wicked you are. And you've been that way from birth. You've been that way from the moment you were conceived. From the moment you came into being, there's been this bent, this proclivity away from God. David says, this is who I am and have always been. He turns to God. He owns his sin. Confession is turning to God, acknowledging your sin. So then having turned to God, having acknowledged his sin, he then seeks to change. The third thing in confession, having turned to God, having owned his sin, he seeks to change. In verses 7 through 9, we said he asked for cleansing again. Look at verses 10 to 12. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He seeks change. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He wants change so badly, he says, I need a new heart. Hear that. You know what's interesting about his prayer as he's trying to change? Why doesn't he say, God, just give me another chance and I promise I'll do better? Why doesn't he pray, God, give me better techniques when it comes to lust so that I wouldn't do that anymore? Why doesn't he pray, God, let my eyes avert so that I wouldn't stumble over women anymore? Why doesn't he pray, give me some accountability partners in my life because that's what I need? Why does he pray not a word about sexual sin? And I mention that because that's the sin that birthed this psalm. Why does he not say a word about it? Because as one pastor said, sexual sin was just a symptom of a disease. And the disease, the problem, was not his eyes. The problem was not that balcony. The problem was not just being away from war. The problem was in his heart. He needs a new heart. There is no resource within himself to change. There's no, if I could just do better, if I could just muster this up, if I could just learn a new technique, if I could just get the right accountability partner. He's saying, I need a new heart. 
Because it's from your heart that adultery comes forth and murder comes forth and lies come forth. We sin, and particularly in this chapter, we sin sexually because we've got a problem of the heart. Psalm 16 says, You have shown to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But you don't believe that in your heart. And so we run to sexual sin because we really believe in that hour and in that moment there is greater pleasure than at His right hand and more fullness of joy in that act than in Him. It's a problem of the heart. 2 Corinthians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all compassion and the Father of all mercies who comforts us in all our afflictions who comforts us in all our afflictions, but you don't believe that. I don't believe that. And so at the end of a long day, after you've had a fight with your spouse, there's something in you that so badly wants comfort. And in that hour and in that moment, you believe that, that sin of whatever sort, is going to give you greater comfort than him. And you don't believe that Jesus said, I will send a comforter for you the Holy Spirit who resides in you. Because in that hour and in that moment, the problem is in your heart. And because you don't believe God in His words, you run to this sin. A woman believes this lie. She doesn't believe John 15 where Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. But in the hour she does not believe that, she so desperately needs to hear the pleasant words of that guy who's whispering sweet nothings in her ear and making her feel beautiful and accepted like she's worth something. And so she believes in that hour that there's greater love coming down from lying with him than from him who laid down his life for her. We sin, and particularly even of the sexual sort, as Psalm 51 reminds us, as 2 Samuel 11 reminds us, because we've got a problem of the heart And so David says, if I'm going to change, you have to create in me. That means you got to take something that's not there and put it there. It's not work on this heart and make it better. It's create in me a new heart, a clean heart. I've got no resources from within myself to draw upon. I need an alien heart to come into my heart and into my soul. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit with me. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. If you take your spirit from me, I'm done. But instead, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Give me a spirit that's going to keep me going in this. And here's what he says here, and I want you to pay attention to this. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You have to hear that because I, I think... Some of us will mistakenly think that confession is simply about being humbled to the dust. Confession is being humbled to the dust so that you can be lifted up. David prays this prayer because he's out for joy. He wants joy. It's not going to be enough to just wallow in his sin. He wants joy. And that leads us to the last part. Confession is turning to God acknowledging your sin, seeking a change that can only come from God. And listen to what he says last. 
Confession is believing the gospel. Look at verses 13 to 15. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will come back to you. Deliver me, O God, from blood guiltiness, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Confession is turning to God, acknowledging your sin, seeking change, and believing the gospel. All right, now why did I say this last part as believing the gospel? Gospel means good news. Why, why am I saying here that David is believing the gospel? Here's why. As I read through this prayer, I am amazed and struck by the gutsiness of this prayer. I'm struck by the boldness of this prayer, by the audacity of this prayer, by the thought that David could actually think he could pray this. Remember, this is no small, minor indiscretion. This is not a white lie. He murdered, committed adultery, conspiracy, and lie. And yet, David, by the end of this prayer, is so fully confident that God will hear him, he anticipates that he will be fully restored. Right? He, he is hours away from this confrontation with Nathan. He's just been exposed as an adulterer, a murderer, a liar. And yet, before he's done with this prayer, he has the gutsiness to imagine that after you hear me, and after you restore me, and after you give me joy and salvation again, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will come back to you. David is so convinced so anticipates God's hearing of his prayer, so believing that God has the power to restore him, that he's going to be the one who tells other sinners what God wants and how to get right with God. I don't know about you, when I read that, I thought, the audacity of this man to think, you, you got to go time out, brother, you just got found out as being an adulterer and a murderer, and yet David's saying, and I'll be the one who tells other sinners how to get right with God. Why? Because he believes the gospel. He believes God can produce that kind of change. That the end of his story is not going to be him wallowing in his sin, but that God will so thoroughly transform him that he will be used by God to declare to other sinners the way of God, to point sinners back to God. That God is so thoroughly going to hear this prayer that God's going to use him. And as I thought about it, that's been the story of every person and church. I want you to hear this. The church you are sitting in was planted by sinners all the way downstream. Church planter who began this was a man named Paul. He was a murderer, an insolent opponent, a violent man, a blasphemer, 1 Timothy 2. And yet God changed that man in such a radical way that he plants many churches. And every man successively since, down to your pastor, is one who is a sinner of this sort. And every one of you that God intends to use is a sinner of such sort. And yet to those who turn to God and acknowledge their sin and seek change, if you believe the gospel, God intends to use you to turn transgressors back to him so that sinners might return. He goes on even to say, deliver me from blood guiltiness and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Hear that again. 
Open my mouth and my lips will declare your praise. Why? It's been a year of unconfessed sin. That means every time he gathered with God's people, his mouth was shut in shame. How could he sing? Or if he sang, he had the deep dark thought that he's been a hypocrite this whole time. Every word sung beautifully in melody is just another word and rant from a hypocrite. But now, having turned to God and acknowledged his sin and sought change, now he says, with my sin thoroughly washed and gone, I will sing aloud with your people. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. That's what's extended to you in five minutes when I'm done. We will sing and you will have the option of either shutting your mouth in shame because what right do you have to sing? Or opening your mouth like a hypocrite and singing words that are not true because you have not confessed. Or you can have God open your lips and your mouth will declare his praise. He says, I will sing aloud of your great name. You can sing as a forgiven sinner. As a sinner whose sin has been so thoroughly washed out, there is nothing left to hold your mouth shut. And here's what's amazing about this for me. David believes this stuff without knowing all that you know, without seeing all that you see. He's in the Old Testament. And yet, you have Jesus. How much more you ought to believe David has the ability to say, have mercy on me, O God, without seeing the cross that you see. How much more should you believe then? I want to say this one part. In 2 Samuel 12, David has committed these sins, and in the Old Testament law, there is no sacrifice for his sins. The sin of his sort is so grievous, death is the only thing that's allowed. Hear that again. There's no way out. There's no sacrifice for the sins David committed. And yet in 2 Samuel 12, the Lord says to him, I have put your sin away. All right, you got to pause and go, how? Why is God allowed to put his sin away? That's not righteous. If God is holy and righteous and the law demands that he be put to death, how is God going to put his sin away? I'll say that to you. If you're in a court and a, and a judge says to a murderer and a, a rapist, I'm going to put your sin away, nobody would go, that's awesome, that's unrighteous. How is God allowed to do that for David? It, it, one pastor says it like this, it's like layaway. If you buy something on layaway, you pay for it later. Well, the only reason Jesus, God said to David, I will put your sin away, is because his sin was put on layaway. So that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, finally, that sin against Bathsheba was paid for. And that murder against Uriah was paid for. All the sin of all of humanity put on Christ. If you have seen the cross, how much more should your prayers have this gutsiness and belief in the gospel? If David said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, how much more can you pray that because you've seen Jesus on the cross? If David says, wash me thoroughly from all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, blot out my transgressions, 
how much more he's seeking some kind of detergent for his soul, how much more you ought to pray that, knowing that the blood of Christ washes away your sin. 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess that we have sinned, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David, the best he could hope for was hyssop. You have the blood of Christ ready to wash your sins away. If David could say, create in me a clean heart and cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit, how much more can you say that as ones in whom the Holy Spirit now dwells? As one in whom Jesus said, you are now new creations. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation. If David could say, then... I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. How much more you who have not only seen the the cross but the empty tomb. Who have not only seen that you need to wallow in your sin. No, your sin has been paid for. But moreover that the tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. There's victory over sin and death. You are bound by it no more. You're new in Him. If your confession ends with acknowledging your sin but does not move all the way forward to the empty tomb, and now I'm new, you've stopped short of the full gospel. Because the full gospel takes you all the way to the good news that He is risen, and you have new life in Him. And now sinners can be brought back through your life and your testimony. If David could pray these prayers, how much more can you pray them in light of Jesus Christ? And so if we're going to learn to pray, we've got to learn to confess. And if we're going to confess, we've got to turn to God, acknowledge our sin, seek change, believe the gospel. Next Sunday when Sibby stands during our service and says, now we have a time of confession. In those two minutes, you know what to do. Your mind need not wander, wondering what that minute is for. That minute is for this you can, in that moment, say with David, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. You can acknowledge your sin. You can own up to the sin of that morning as you walked into church or that week. You can name your sins. You can seek change. You can say, God, you got to create in me a new heart. i got nothing in myself to help me do better. And you can believe the gospel. Believe it so thoroughly that by the time he says, you who have repented have been cleansed, you can sing with David the next song and say, open my mouth and my lips will sing your praise. As we go from here, I have just one question for you as the application for you to take home. Is there unconfessed sin in your life? That's the only question I want you to walk away with. Is there hidden sin in your life? Is there sin in your life that is growing in the dark? That you are nourishing and nurturing and protecting? Is there sin in your life that needs to be brought into the light of God's day? Is there sin that you need to confess to God and appropriately to whoever God may call you to. I want to say that word pastorally to you in appropriate ways to whatever confession you might need to make, to whoever you might need to make. 
This is not, so now name your sins on Facebook as your new status update. This is appropriately confessing your sin to God and to whomever God may require of you. Is there hidden sin in your life? Turn to God. Acknowledge your sin. Seek a new heart. And believe the gospel. Let's pray. Hear this prayer, Lord. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out even now our transgressions. Wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions and our sin is ever before us. Against you, you only have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, we were brought forth in iniquity and in sin did our mothers conceive us. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach us wisdom in the secret heart. Purge us with hyssop and the blood of Christ and we shall be clean. Wash us and we shall be whiter than snow. Let us even today go from here hearing joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from our sins. Blot out all our iniquities. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. Then we will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver us, O God, of our salvation and our tongues will even now sing aloud of your righteousness. Open our lips and our mouths will declare your praise. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.